0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. This is Jennifer Stock. I'm the host for Ocean Currents, and I bring this show to you once a month, the first Monday of every month, from the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary to help raise the awareness of what's going on out there on the ocean amongst the listeners, to you listeners. This show is part of the West Marin Matters series. On every Monday of the month, you can hear a show about local or global economy or environment topics. On ocean currents, we talk about all things relating to saltwater. This is a blue planet we live on, with over 70% of it being ocean. So it does deserve a radio show of its own. We focus on ocean science, conservation, natural history, policy, ocean adventurers, sometimes focusing locally here on our local national marine sanctuaries, and sometimes focusing globally. This time of year, we anxiously stand watch on the coasts looking for the southward migration of gray whales. Every year, gray whales make an annual round-trip migration of 10,000 miles between Alaskan waters and the Bering Sea to the warm lagoons of Baja, Mexico, to breed and give birth. Then, later this spring, they will turn around and head back north to their feeding grounds. Truly a remarkable migration and very visible for us land-based folks to observe and connect to. My guest today, Dr. Liz Alter, studied the current population of gray whales while doing her PhD at Stanford University and looked specifically at the genetic diversity of the whales, and what she found was quite a surprise. Liz currently works as a science fellow with the Natural Resources Defense Council, also known as NRDC, and makes recommendations based on science on marine mammal issues, on policy matters, and environmental issues. Liz joins us today by phone on the East Coast. So welcome, Liz. Thank you for coming on the show today. You're live on the air. Great. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So while most students who are working on a PhD come to their program with a question that addresses a knowledge gap or a problem to solve, what was the question that you were thinking about when you started doing your work at Stanford?
1: well as you as you probably know one of the primary goals of, of conservation science is is to allow threatened and endangered species to recover um, that is to provide conditions such that that today's population sizes can match those that that were there before human disturbance um, but one important question is how do you figure out how abundant a species was before human impact. And one way to investigate this question is, is with DNA. Um, it turns out the genetic composition of a species alive today can give you an idea of, of just how many individuals were there in the past. And so um, we decided to try to apply this idea
0: to gray whales. So when just to go back historically, when did gray, when were gray whales hunted as part of the whaling era? The, the
1: major whaling era for gray whales was uh, at the at the end of the 19th century, so so the late 1800s, and um, they were hunted primarily in the lagoons of Baja. Um, the, the lagoons provided a, a very convenient whaling ground because, uh, as you mentioned, the whales congregate there in the winter, and um, the lagoons are quite shallow. Um, so easy for ships to, to, to get in there and um, find large numbers of concentrated whales. Um, in addition, the whales are, are often there with their young, and um, whalers took advantage of that um, by um, killing uh, young whales in order to um, uh, make the mothers stay nearby. At that point, they would take the mothers. So they were able to um, take large numbers of whales um, in, very, in a very short matter of years.
0: What, do you remember what the population was estimated to be at when the whaling era ended of gray whales? that is uh, it's it's a, it's a matter of some debate um, but it's thought
1: that the the population at its um at its very smallest um, once whaling was kind of at its at its at its peak was um, probably on the order of um, a thousand or a few thousand individuals.
0: Wow. Now there is a, there are other gray whale populations around the world as well. Are there not? Yeah. Uh today there are
1: only the two. Um the, the one that you see migrating past your coast is the eastern Pacific population. And then there is another um extant population in the western Pacific, which is highly, highly endangered. It's it's one of the world's most endangered um baleen whale populations. It's it's um about 120 individuals at this point.
0: Was that a... Um, the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, I was just going to mention in the past, there was a third population um, in the Atlantic. And um, that population went extinct, um, we think sometime in the 1700s. And what caused its, its extinction is still a matter of some some debate, um, Whaling would be one one obvious cause, but but Atlantic whales, oddly enough, don't show up in whaling records very often. Um, so climate has been um, suggested as a as an alternative cause for its extinction.
0: Mm-hmm. And the population over in it's in the Russian part of the Pacific, those were those hunted as well. Was that a ex- result of whaling as well?
1: We don't know very much about it, unfortunately. There. Um, you know, wh- whereas we have really good whaling records and logbooks for um, this side of the Pacific, uh, we have much less information about um, the Western Pacific, the other side. Um, but but almost certainly um, that 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 was the case um, that the, the uh, between um, Russian, uh, Japanese, and Korean coastal whalers um, they they uh, took the population numbers down.
0: Now we have a pretty, what, we, what most fe- people think, a pretty healthy gray whale population on the West Coast. And they've, some folks have said it's recovered and the proximate population is about 20,000 animals. Your research suggests differently. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about your research and some of the findings? So talk a little bit about how you went about to do the genetic sampling and also the results that you got. And I think they're quite surprising. Sure. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, the purpose of our study was to, de- to determine whether gray whale populations had actually returned to pre-hunting levels as some in the scientific and regulatory communities had, had declared. Um, so we wanted to provide a historical context for um, today's population numbers and trends. Uh, And the way we did that was by using DNA. Um, So the premise of the the genetic study is pretty pretty simple. Um, The idea is that the amount of genetic variation in a population um, indicates how big that population was in the past. And that's because a large population of breeding individuals um, can sustain much higher uh, variability in DNA than a small population. Um, The larger population has a greater probability of mutation, and it's also... Less likely to lose variation through random chance or through inbreeding, um, and so the, the technique we used has been um, has been used with with human populations as well, and with um, grizzly grizzly bears and some other terrestrial species. Um, but but to uh, to our knowledge, it's the first time it's been applied at this scale uh, to to a marine species. Um, so as as you as you mentioned, what we found was that. The levels of variation in DNA were too high to have come from a population that numbered twenty thousand. Um, so, in fact, the, the population um, that um, th- that that would be suggested by the amount of variation we found is about about a hundred thousand animals. So, uh, you know, roughly five times as many as we have um, as we have now.
0: That's outstanding. It's almost unfathomable to to think that it's almost five times as many whales that we have now. Now, with the whale, these are whales that are baleen whales. They sieve through their baleen plates, but unlike humpbacks and blue whales that feed up in the water column, gray whales sift in the mud. What exactly are they feeding on in the mud? How deep do they go, and what types of things do they pull up?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, so you know, we, we we think of gray whales as as um, sort of marine bulldozers. They're they're um, they're bulldozing through the mud with um, with their baleen, not going very deep. Um, they're dredging up um, marine invertebrates, um, primarily amphipods um, and other other small crustaceans, but really you know just about anything that lives lives in the mud um, that they're picking up. But they do target these very um, high-calorie amphipods in, in, the, in the Bering Sea and, and northward. Um, so, so we know that um, in the way that they feed, they have been an important component in near-shore and pelagic ecosystems. Um, but we just haven't had very much information about um, what their pre-wailing population was. And so that's really prevented us from understanding um, what their historical roles and ecosystems might have been.
0: Mm-hmm. For those just tuning in we 're talking with Liz Alter, who is talking about the study of gray whales and the genetic diversity that we have in our current population, suggesting that our original population of gray whales was much larger than the one that we have today we 're estimating that based on the genetic variation that there potentially may have been about one hundred thousand animals at one point. that suggests that the Ocean probably was able to support 100,000 animals. What does the 20,000 animal population um, saying recovered mean as far as ocean conditions go?
1: Uh, you mean ocean conditions today and, 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 and what, we're, what we're seeing with the gray whale population today?
0: Right. How have the how how do you think the ocean conditions have changed since um, a, the population was supporting one hundred thousand animals, and and now a population only so supporting twenty thousand animals? Right. So yeah, this is this is
1: a um, a really interesting question, um, and and very relevant as we're continuing to see um, this phenomenon of, of skinny whales, um, and and you may have seen some off of off your coast this year. Um, so for the last. The last few years, uh, scientists working in in Baja and um, observing the migration in Southern California have noted um, roughly ten percent of, of gray whales looking kind of skinny. And so when when you see when you see a whale in this condition, it's pretty obvious their are scapulas stick up, and you can see their vertebrae, which is um, not the case for a, a nice healthy bat whale. Um, and so. You know, one one um, hypothesis right now is that um, we're seeing we're seeing um, a a big shift in terms of what these whales are are able to find in the way of food. Um, it goes along with the, the with the observations um, that whales have been moving increasingly northward um, for for feeding. Um, so, whereas in the 1980s we saw um, Large concentrations of, of gray whales feeding in the Bering Sea. Now, um, now they uh, a lot of them move um, even farther north up into um, the uh, Beaufort and Chukchi Seas, um, all the way around to Barrow, where where once it was you know pretty unusual to see a gray whale, and and now um, Eskimo whaling tribes up there see them see them quite frequently. Um, and so the, the hypothesis is that um, basically. Climate change is is changing um, oceanographic conditions in their feeding ground, um, and gray whales are, you know, in this period of adaptation where their their uh, population is is um, catching up with with oceanographic changes.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there have been some local reports here of resident gray whales, specifically um, around the Gulf of the Fairlands Point Reyes area. There have been a couple of gray whales that seem to stick seem to stick around year round, even coming into Tomales Bay and whatnot. Do you think that whales that might be doing this local residency it's the same thing? If the food's good here, why go all the way to the Bering Sea where it may not be as good?
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, and that mirrors what what um, other folks in in British Columbia have seen too, sort of these increasing numbers of. of um, so-called resident whales or, or, or um, local feeding aggregations, um, and I think that's absolutely right. That you know, whales right now um, are are looking for any additional feeding opportunities. And if they find if they find a good patch that's farther south, um, it makes a lot more sense to conserve calories and, and stay there rather than traveling north where you might not find as much.
0: As far as an ecosystem connection, when gray whales feed and they're stirring up the mud, I'm assuming this also has a effect on the surrounding ecosystem, other fish that might be nearby, finding stirred up food, maybe even birds coming to forage. Has this yeah. big shift, do you think, changed the greater ecosystem as far as food availability, not just the amphipods for the gray whales, but the birds and nearby fish and other animals?
1: Absolutely. Um as you said, they're 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 digging up um, crustaceans and and um, and other invertebrates in the mud, and um, basically stirring up the mud in a way that really affects um, the the benthic ecosystem, and that also brings leftover food and nutrients to the surface, um, and nutrients and food which otherwise would have stayed on the ocean floor. Um, so so. In addition to changing nutrient cycling, they're also providing um, food subsidies to, to communities in the water column and, and terrestrial communities, including seabirds.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in, in our, in our um, study, we estimated that, that um, the historical population of gray whales, that is a population of about 100,000, would have supplemented the diet of about a million seabirds.
0: Wow. So those are in decline as well, I'm sure. Right. Right. Yeah, well,
1: yeah, or at least, you know, we don't we don't have any evidence to suggest that right now, but that may be because we just don't know what historical populations of seabirds used to look like.
0: One of the contributing factors, then, probably, as far as food change. Um, yeah, exactly. Talk a little bit about how you did your sampling. How do you get samples of DNA for gray whales? How many animals did you sample from? Um, I also read that you did some work... At some macaw sites in Washington, the Macaw tribe have um, rights to be able to hunt gray whales through their Indian treaty rights. Can you talk a little bit about how you did your sampling to get the DNA?
1: Sure. Yeah. This is this is uh, um, one of the first questions that we often get. Um, getting getting samples from from whales is is, is not an easy process. Um, and for this study, we were lucky to be able to work with um, the Southwest Fisheries Science Center, uh, which is part of the National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, And they maintain um, a a, uh, collection of DNA samples from marine mammals that um, have stranded along the coast of California or um, Washington or Oregon. In addition, they maintain a collection of any animals that were biopsied. So so we were able to um, utilize some of their samples for this study, which was great because it gave us a very nice um, random sampling of the population. So one of the issues with going out and biopsying a whole whole group of whales um, in a short period of time is that you may be very likely to be sampling family groups. And that can really bias your study because obviously um, family members are more closely related to each other genetically and so you'll get a much lower estimate of genetic variation than you would have otherwise.
0: Is there so any... we, were, we
1: were very um, grateful to Southwest Fishery Science Center for, for um, helping us out with the samples.
0: That's neat. Is there any bias as far as sampling from whales that have washed up dead as far as they're not alive anymore? <laughs> oh, so not to our knowledge. Um, the, you know, the it's it's still still a,
1: a an open question as to whether disease played any role in um, the, the the massive stranding events that co- that happened in 1999 and 2000. Um, but to our knowledge, there's there's uh, there's no no bias in in those um, in those samples. So the stranded animals should represent a, a random subset of the population. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what was your purpose of um, going up to the macaw tribe and, and sampling ancient? I I guess they were bones, or how did you sample up there?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, so, the the purpose of that study was to follow up on on the work that I've been talking about. Um, so, our the this this the study that used the modern DNA um, showed that we had a population of one hundred thousand gray whales, give or take. But, uh, uh, the next big question is well, when did we have such a big population? Was it, you know, 200 years ago? Was it 2,000 years ago, et cetera? And, um, you know, one, in order to make these results relevant for management, we'd really like to know if um, perhaps the bottleneck in gray whales, that big decline from 100,000 to the 20,000 we see today, um, if that occurred before whaling even started due to some natural because mm. And that's very difficult to. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to study using modern uh, DNA data alone. But um, if you have DNA samples from multiple points in time, then that can give you a much better idea of um, historical and ancient fluctuations in the population. So, um, with that in mind, I. Um, Worked with the Macaw tribe and some archaeological samples that um, uh, that they had in their collection in in um, Nia Bay in, in Northwest Washington State, and um, that work is is still in progress. Um, so I, I I won't speak about the results quite yet, but, um, but look for it in the next year or so.
0: <laughs> Interesting. How about other samples that are in? Um, geologic formations, like I know here in Point Reyes out at Drake's Bay, we have this layered sediment out um, where you can just see layers and layers of rocks, and there's fossils in there. And I've heard there's quite a few gray whale fossils in there. How would that help? Would that contribute to the study as well, as far as a time period that you'd be looking at? Uh it it it, it would it would depend on like you say the time period. Um, most of the
1: most of the um, material that is Useful for for DNA, it tends to be sub-fossils, so it tends to be Holocene material um, from the last 10,000 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, much older than that, it's 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 absolutely possible to get DNA out, but it becomes harder and harder. And then once true fossilization has taken place, um, then it's just about impossible, um, as far as we know. Although you know, you can always hold out hope that one day we'll get real DNA from uh, from from T. rex and that sort
0: of thing. That's amazing <laughs> to even think that you can get a living tissue like that, that has so much genetic information from something that's been dead for so long.
1: It is, yeah. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. It's, a, it's amazing. It's always amazing to me just how much information there is about populations in, in literally micrograms of, of material from an organism.
0: Incredible. Has this, this type of sampling, genetic sampling, been used in other marine mammal populations?
1: Um, certainly, genetic information um, for marine mammals is is um, um, widespread and important. Um, it, typically, um, genetic information is used to try to determine how many um, separate breeding populations there are, um, and occasionally it's used to do you know mark recapture studies and something like that. Uh, studies of that nature, in order to determine the number, the exact number of individuals alive today. Um, but but the, this kind of historical work is a, is a bit rarer. Although, um, you know, certainly there's lots of potential for applications to to other species.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know in the Pacific here, there's a humpback whale study called Splash, where they're doing genetic work amongst all the different populations of humpbacks to see how they're related or not related, and um, exactly, if there's yeah. crossbreeding, it's really cool
1: yeah and it's also you know it's also very um it's a, a, a sort of a new trend and a really important trend i think is is to um compare genetic data with data from other sources like um stable isotopes or or um photo id data um as, you know, as a as a I was a geneticist by training, and so I, I got into um, these these other fields sort of secondhand. But um, the more I learn about them, the more I realize how, how incredibly valuable it is to have um, information from all these different sources when you're trying to learn about <laughs> these populations that that um, only surface for seconds at a time and mm-hmm. and uh, are very hard to find.
0: When you do the genetic studies, is there a specific number of genes or type of genes that you are looking for that quantify like you said you had a much bigger diversity of genes available suggesting the bigger population size what is kind of a threshold or specific genes that you look for when you're doing this the the, the main
1: um, the, the main points of importance there are that you you, you want regions of DNA that are not subject to um, natural selection, so you want them to be um, evolving, evolving neutrally, um, in other words, changing randomly. Um, and in addition, you want to make sure that you have um, as many uh, different regions of the genome represented um, as you can, um, and that's because just by chance, um, different genes change at different rates. So, in order to get an idea of the the true population size, you want um, you're looking for you're looking for a, a, a random selection of of neutrally evolving genes.
0: Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard to explain. I bet I had a hard time in genetics in school <laughs> for most folks, anyway. <laughs> the other thing I should mention, though,
1: is that um, it's also important to know the evolutionary rate of all these genes, and so that was something we had to measure in this in this study as well. And one of the interesting things that we found um, was that, on average, um, whale DNA, gray whale DNA, was um, mutating at a much slower rate uh, compared to your average mammal. And um, it's thought it, we, we think the reason for that is because of the you know, the large, large body size and, and slower metabolism of, of whales compared to, um, say, rodents.
0: Well, we're just coming up to about 1.30. We have just a few minutes. So, Liz, if you don't mind staying on hold for a little bit, we're gonna take a short break. And sure, we'll thanks. come back in just a few minutes and talk a little bit about some of these results and what do they suggest for future management of of gray whales and, and other marine mammals. So please stay with us. We're gonna take a short break. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Ocean Currents. My guest today is Dr. Liz Alter with the NRDC Natural Resource Defense Council. We've been talking about a study she did on gray whales and learning about their uh, potential future po- uh, past populations being much higher than they are right now. Now, Liz, what? Um, how did we think that gray whales, when we came back to about the population we have now, how, why did we think they were recovered? What? What pointed to them being a recovered species. Sure. Well, um, the historical population est- estimate for for um,
1: gray whales was based on whaling logbooks, and um, and the the numbers for those varied between about um, fifteen thousand and 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 thirty thousand. So that roughly matches the the numbers that we see today. Um, however, there's 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 many reasons to be skeptical of, of um, just estimating um, historical population from, from whaling logbooks alone. Um, obviously, there there um, may be lost records that that we don't know about. And then, in addition, there's a there's a big question about how you get from numbers of, of whales killed to um, to the, the total uh, population in the past. Mm-hmm. And with gray whales, um, it's particularly tricky because um, the historical numbers are based on the numbers of barrels of whale oil sold and uh, the records for those. And so in order to make that calculation, you have to make some, um, some pretty broad assumptions about how many, you know, how many um, barrels of oil you get from one whale, etc., Um, and you have to take into account the number of whales that may have been, um, struck and killed, but not, uh, not taken aboard for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, there's a lot of assumptions that, that go into those calculations. Um, and, and we know that they're, they're, they're almost certainly going to be on the low side. Um, so, so that was the initial, um, reason for, for assuming that this population was recovered. The second was that, um, in, in 1999 and 2000, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we saw this, this, uh, this die off of gray whales, um, an increase in stranding, a decrease in calving rates. And, um, many people looked at that trend, you know, of, of a population that had been growing very quickly. And then all of a sudden seemed to hit this wall mm-hmm. and said, oh, okay. So they've Gray whale population has reached um, a level where ocean resources can no longer support it, so it must have reached, um, you know, the level it had in the past before before whaling had occurred. Um, so those those were the two, you know, primary primary uh, reasons why um, some in the scientific and regulatory communities had had um, declared that that gray whales were recovered.
0: You say some were there some that. Uh, believe this was not a recovery, that this was just a reflection of the changing ocean conditions.
1: Yeah, and and I think you know in in the interview in the years in between um, 2000 and, and now, um, I think a, a lot of scientists that, that work on gray whales have have um, um, have seen that that in fact um, the changes in the population point to um, some. Fairly new and dramatic changes in their in their um, habitat, their feeding habitat in particular, and that uh, rather than being simply um, a case of of these these whales you know hitting their their long term carrying capacity, um, that we're seeing something we're seeing something really different now um, uh, than than what may have happened in the past.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the most Things that really struck me when reading this paper and, and the media surrounding it was that if gray whales were a number of 100,000 at one time and our current population, the ocean can barely support the current population of 20,000 now. What does this mean, not just for gray whales, but other marine species and ecosystems? Is there a worry that the ocean cannot support life like it used to?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, I think this is this is one of the the um, uh, the more de- depressing aspects of this sort of study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the genetic results suggest that, that gray whales haven't fully recovered from whaling. Um, but what's going on now uh, the, with the, the population suggests that that they may not ever be able to fully recover. Um, that the the changes in the oceans that have happened in the meantime. Um, may prevent them from from recovering fully um, and and um, you know it 's not just climate change it's it's um pollution um, both chemical and noise um, coastal development commercial overfishing um, you know the gray whales are are um, highly coastal species, which is um, one reason why they're so familiar um, along the coast of california they're as you mentioned they 're really easy to spot and they're um, they're a very familiar species, but um, their their love of coast puts them um, at even greater risk of of various uh, human um, impacts along the along the, the shoreline.
0: With that in mind, as far as we're seeing huge climate shifts already, and our uh, climate created shifts uh, compared with other industrial shifts of human development or along the coastlines and. Pollution and whatnot. What do you think are the most important recommendations for scientists and resource managers for preserving what we have for the remainder with this incredible change? What are What do you think are the most important things to focus on for conserving, based on this huge amount of change we're seeing right now?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question and obviously a very difficult one. Um, but you know, there there are there are there are things that we can change, and there are things that um, are, are more difficult to change. Of course, um, unfortunately, climate change is one of those things that um, you know we're now we're now um, reading reading studies that say that even if even if we stop everything today, um, we're we're going to be in the same same fix for about a thousand years. Um, it's it's uh, you know the the, the the wheels are already in motion. And while it's important to try to slow, you know, slow the train down as much as we can, there's um, certain ecosystem changes that are, are inevitable at this point, and, mm-hmm. and that's very frightening. Um, but there are things that we can control, and those include um, some of the other impacts that I mentioned, like coastal development and um, pollution, actually um, um, chemical and, and acoustic pollution. So, you know, wh- these whales and all marine creatures, um, especially those that are, are, are close to the coast, um, deal with this incredible suite of of impacts, and making sure that we reduce the ones we can, um, and and helping helping wild populations in whatever way um, we can adapt to the ones that that are inevitable at this point. Um, I think is, is you know is what's important.
0: I heard uh, Jane Lubchenko and Sylvia Earle speak at a uh, climate change. Senate hearing last year, and two things that really struck me that they said were about protecting the biodiversity that we do have and protecting the edges of the ocean where there is such extreme biodiversity and, and healthy habitat, and we have that here in California. It's really important that we focus on that as far as, as one of the best things we possibly can do for preserving uh, ocean life in the future.
1: Oh, that's absolutely right. Um couldn't agree more. And, and you know, you mentioned before that you're seeing gray whales feeding off of Point Reyes, and, and um, you know, that's that's <laughs> as as climate influences their habitat farther north, um, areas um, areas like that are going to become increasingly important. So, per- making sure that we preserve what we do have and, and um, you know, protecting large swaths of habitat that that we can, uh, I think, will be really critical.
0: What are some other marine mammal-related issues that you're working on with NRDC right now? So in my current work, um, I am striving to try to ensure that,
1: that the best available science is used in, in um, policy, particularly marine mammal um, policy. And one of the things I'm working on is the science underlying the, the impacts of human-caused noise, um, both acute noise from things like Navy sonar, and then um, sort of more general ocean noise. Um, Chris Clark at Cornell University has a has a very poignant term for it: acoustic smog. Um, mm. <laughs> I think kind of um, says it all. Uh, marine mammals are, are um, extremely acoustically um, sensitive um, species. You know, they they depend on acoustics for for navigation, for communication, for feeding, um, for avoiding predators. And so the amount of, of uh, uh, human-caused noise that's in the ocean right now has the potential to really be impacting their you know, very basic activities like finding mates and um, being able to to find their way around. Um, so one of the things that I'm working on is um, trying to figure out whether we can identify areas of the ocean that are are particularly important to marine mammals and try to put those areas off limits to to loud north noise sources. Um, so it, it's, uh, you know, a, like expanding a bit beyond um, the idea of, of um, marine protected areas to, to um, sort of more generalize the idea of, of ocean zoning and um, marine spatial planning.
0: That's great. That ties in really nicely for my show next month. I'm interviewing... Dr. John Hildebrand from the oh, Scripps, Scripps Institute in San Diego talking about acoustics in the ocean. And his original story or original research area was um, using acoustics to study populations and movement in the ocean of those animals. But he's he's also working in the area of disturbance and whatnot. So we'll be tying into that next month. Yeah, he,
1: Dr. Hildebrand is... is um, is just one of the foremost experts in in marine mammal acoustics and I'm sure it'll be a fascinating interview.
0: Wonderful. Well Liz, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today about the gray whales. I I was just done reading this and thought that it was really important to share because it really illustrates our changing ocean and the effects that may have on other parts of our ecosystems and urges us more to participate in in conservation. Is there any resources or last words you'd like to share as far as ways to learn more about what you're doing? Um, Well, I I would uh, encourage everyone to
1: to, um, visit the NRDC website, nrdc.org, where we have a lot of information about our marine mammal program and um, how we're trying to um, protect marine mammals um, when it comes to um, human-caused noise disturbance. Um, and i as a as a closing note i would just say that um you know the, the phenomenon of of shifting baselines in the ocean i think is is just a really um a, a really insidious problem that i think things like your show um really help to help to fight against um so so thanks very much for for having me on
0: thank you have a wonderful afternoon thanks so much take care Thank you for tuning in today for Ocean Currents. Uh, The show is always the first Monday of the month. And if you want to catch up on previous shows, there is a podcast available on the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary website at cordellbank.noaa.gov. And you can hear all the past shows that have been hosted here on KWMR and even sign up for a podcast if you'd like. Next month... We will have Dr. John Hildebrand on, who is an acoustic specialist. We'll be talking a lot about sound in the ocean. This has been a really interesting topic. It's been in the news a lot. And uh, John is a great speaker about the topic. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.